Let's turn our Bibles tonight to 1 Kings chapter number 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. And uh, what a blessing. Amen. It's a blessing when you come in the morning, but it's a real blessing when you come back. Amen. And uh, I'm thrilled that you're here with us tonight. Looking forward to what the Lord is going to do. 1 Kings chapter number 19. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture, I think, to most of us that have grown up in and around church and are students of the Bible. And this details Elijah's flight into the wilderness, his despair, his discouragement, and God's tender mercy in dealings with him. Man, I'm glad that God is gentle in how he deals with us when we're struggling. Uh, I'm glad that God doesn't just tell us to dry it up. Did you ever get told that when you was a kid? Dry it up. Amen. And uh, I used to get told that a lot when I was young. Uh, things like, if you don't stop crying, I'll give you something to cry about. I always used to think that was strange. I obviously had something to cry about or I wouldn't have been crying. Amen. But uh, I'm glad God is gentle in how he deals with us when we're struggling. In many ways, the message tonight, and I didn't really plan it this way. I've had this message prepared for a number of weeks. But uh, in many ways, the message tonight is almost an extension of some of what we preached on this morning. And some of the thoughts that God had laid on my heart. First Kings chapter number 19. And let's begin reading in verse number 1. First Kings chapter 18, or 19, excuse me, verse number 1. The Bible says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them, by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baked on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink, and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time, and touched him, and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose, and did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. 
when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahola, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us come and be in this place. Lord, I never want to take for granted the privilege it is to gather in your house, the comfort and strength and help that I get from being around your people. Lord, I just pray that you'd take the administration of this service tonight. Pray that the Holy Ghost would lead, guide, and direct in everything said and done, and that your perfect will would be exercised in this place. Lord, I don't know any person's heart's condition, but I know you've not brought us here by accident. And Lord, you've not brought us here by incident, but by providence. And so I pray, Lord, that you would take this service and use it for your glory. Pray that you'd take me and use me for your glory. And I pray that tonight we would see Christ exalted. I pray that tonight we'd see eternal business done in our hearts and lives. We'll be sure to thank you for what transpires. Lord, I love you. Thank you for loving us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when you study the life of Elijah, uh, we find that chapters uh, 17 and 18 and 19 present not only an introduction to this great prophet and the work that God would do through his life, but I think arguably probably the most significant moments in his life, at least what is scripturally known to us. Chapter number 18, of course, details for us the great showdown on Mount Carmel. After in chapter 17, the land suffering for over three years under a famine, God commands Elijah to gather all of Israel upon Mount Carmel and to finally settle once and for all who is the true God. Let me just pause and say it'd be a great help to some of us if we quit halting between two opinions. If the Lord is God, serve Him. And if Baal is God, serve Him. There's nothing more perverse than worldly Christianity. For it does not embrace what pleasures the world can give, but it does not acknowledge the truth of God as set forth in Scripture. So it helps us to not halt between two opinions, but instead to choose and to serve the Lord. And so they arrive there on Mount Carmel, and of course the altar is built. And you no doubt have heard it in Sunday school and heard preachers preach on how that God answered by fire on that day and left no dispute and no debate. And no doubt as to who the true God was. We understand how that after that passage and after that great uh, example of God's prowess and of God's power and of God's presence, that God then sends rain upon the land of Israel. And Elijah looks at Ahab, the king over Israel, who is a defier of God, and he is a, a rebel against God, and he is a worshiper of Baal. And he says, get you off the mountain, there's rain coming. And so Ahab climbs in his chariot. Uh, Elijah just takes off running because it's easier to run downhill if you got good knees. Somebody say amen. And uh, so he takes off running. But when he gets to Jezreel, the place where Ahab and Jezebel dwelled, he finds out that word has reached Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, concerning the slaying of the prophets of Baal, and that Jezebel is now seeking his own life and is seeking to kill him. This seems to spiral Elijah into a pit of despair and discouragement. Chapter 18 presents probably the greatest triumph of Elijah's ministry. 
But chapter 19 presents probably the greatest trial in Elijah's ministry. It says in verse 1 of our text that Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, uh, uh, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Verse 3 says, When he saw that, he arose, went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. Now I want you to listen to the depths to which Elijah sank. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And said, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father. Elijah literally goes from the apex of his ministry, from the the pinnacle of his uh, usefulness and effectiveness, down to the very pit of despair and discouragement. What had caused Elijah's despair? And I don't want to get too psychoanalytical on us tonight, but I just want to ask some simple questions. When I read this passage of Scripture, I understand the Bible tells us that he saw the threat that Elijah or that Jezebel had made towards him, that he went for his life. But can I just ask an obvious question? Was it simply fear that drove him to this place of discouragement? After all, for over three years, Ahab had been seeking Elijah everywhere that he could. I think Elijah was a man that understood that his life was forfeit before he ever climbed off that mountain. He anticipated that if Jezebel got her way, that she would kill him. Beyond that, a man that is willing to walk into the throne room of the king of Israel and say it will neither rain uh, uh, nor uh, there be any water until I say so by the word of the Lord. That's a man with great courage. I would just suggest to you that undoubtedly Elijah was afraid. But there must be something else that is at play for this man to sink from so lofty of height to so low a place in such a brief period of time. Was he really just simply afraid? They'd been trying to kill him for three years. Now, I think there's probably something else that, while not to the exclusion of his fear, is certainly working in concert with his fear. Now, you may disagree with what I'm about to say, but I believe that probably one of the things that led to Elijah's despair was disappointment. I believe it was probably disappointment in man. In fact, let me go a step further and say in one man in particular, I think it was probably disappointment in Ahab. I think Elijah had probably spent three years thinking that if God could just make himself known, then all the people would see and all the people would heed and they would believe on him and everything would change and everything would be better. He had to learn this painful truth about human nature that man doesn't reject God because he lacks evidence. Man rejects God because he lacks humility. And Ahab, while confessing that he would change, while confessing that he would bow the knee, while confessing that Jehovah was the God, the true God, the only God, the one God, when Elijah gets back to Jezreel, he realizes it's all empty words. Jezebel's decree had proved that Ahab had rejected God's testimony on Carmel. He thought the fire would bring change, but it didn't. Instead... Ahab stayed the same old Ahab. You see, God had shaken the land through famine. And God had spoken loudly through the fire. And God had soaked the land with a storm. But Ahab had not been willing to hear God's voice. And I think that at least a contributing factor to his despair 
was the great disappointment he felt that he thought something would change. He thought the storm would change something. He thought the fire would change something. He thought the famine would change something. He thought that all this would change something. But despite all of his anticipation, Ahab had refused to hear God's voice in the famine, in the fire, or in the storm. But when I read this passage of Scripture, we begin to see that in fact Elijah is in many ways guilty of the same mistake that Ahab made. Elijah had faced the storm. Elijah had stood when things were shaking apart. Elijah had walked through the fire. But had he learned to hear the voice of God in the midst of all of it? In this passage of Scripture, we find Elijah hearing God's voice in the midst of the fire, the wind, the earthquake, the storm. And learning what it is to listen to God in the midst of the turmoil of our trials. You see, if you weather your storm, but you don't hear his voice in the storm, then you've missed the whole point of the storm. So I want to preach to you tonight on this thought, hearing his voice in the midst of your storm. Now, as we've read already, Elijah has fled Jezreel. He has gone a day's journey into the wilderness and he has sat down and demanded that God kill him. It's interesting that in his petulance, just because he's in despair doesn't mean that he's any less petulant, doesn't mean that he's any less rebellious. Anytime you're telling God when it's enough, you've got your heart in the wrong position. And so he proclaims that God must kill him. But I'm glad God doesn't always give us what we want. And this is a prayer that God doesn't answer. God instead refuses to kill Elijah and instead resurrects Elijah out of his despair because he still has a plan for his life. Notice with me, number one tonight, the seeking of God's voice. There are some things that had to happen before he could hear God's voice. Notice the first with me in verse 5. The Bible says that as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake bacon on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. Let me say the first step in the midst of our despair, discouragement, in hearing God's voice, is the renewing of our hope. It's interesting. The Lord shows up, and I believe it's the Lord. The Bible calls Him the angel of the Lord. And all throughout the Old Testament, the term angel of the Lord is indicative of what theologians call a theophany or a Christophany, a pre-Bethlehem incarnation of Christ, Him being the arm and the body and the manifestation of the Father. And so he, He meets with Elijah, and what does He do? He fixes Him something to eat. Now, let me say, number one, I'm pro-eating. Amen. I didn't have to tell you that, did I? But I think there's a deeper truth that is here. He fixes him this meal, and he awakes him, and Elijah eats the meal, and then rolls back over and goes right back to sleep. Goes into a food coma on a Sunday afternoon and goes right back to sleep. And the angel, instead of leaving him there, the Lord, instead of leaving him there, he wakes him up. And commanded him to rise and eat. And then he gives him the reason why. He says, because the journey is too great for thee. You see, when Elijah ate the first meal, he thought he was simply being comforted. But when he eats the second meal, he recognizes 
that he's being commanded. And it's not merely a moment of comfort. It's not merely a moment of the satisfaction of whatever his appetite and desire is. But in fact, God is not just feeding him to satisfy him. God is feeding him to strengthen him because God has a plan for his life further. Can I say the first thing it's going to take in our life, if we're going to rightly hear the voice of God, is we have to recognize there's a voice to hear, and it's got a message to listen to, and God's got a plan to heed. In other words, as long as we're content to wallow in despair, we won't get no better. We won't get no better. And I'm not saying we have to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps, but I am saying we have to clasp the hand of God when He reaches it to us. We have to be willing to be helped. You ever been in a place you wasn't ready to be over it yet? I've been there. I wasn't ready to feel better yet. I wasn't ready to have joy again. I wasn't ready to have peace again. I wasn't ready to forgive. I wasn't ready to move on. And in my petulant self-centeredness, in my childish attitude, I just sat there upon the heap of my self-pity and roosted over the top of my discontent. I think Elijah's wanting to do that. And I think the Lord... Far from Elijah saying to the Lord, it's enough. I think this is the Lord showing up and saying, no, Elijah, that's enough. It's time to get up and go forward. It's time to move on. I believe God's gentle and I believe God knows that we are but dust. And I believe he is patient with us. Hey, but sooner or later, we're going to have to get up and go on with the Lord. We have to allow our heart to be lifted. We have to allow our hope to be strengthened. And his hope had to be renewed if he was to hear the voice of God. I would say the renewing of his hope. But then look at verse 8. The Bible says he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. I see the journey to Horeb. Now, if you've not studied your Bible carefully, or if you've not sat and, and in Sunday school and think, that name Horeb might not mean anything to you. But if you're a student of the Bible, that name Horeb immediately lights off, uh, you know, sirens in your mind. You know where that is because that place Horeb also goes by another name. And it's the name Sinai. He wasn't wandering aimlessly in the wilderness. He was going to the very place that the finger of God had written on the tablet of stone and spoken forth and dispensed to Moses, the man of God, the commandments of the Old Testament. He's going to the place where God speaks. Can I say in your life and mine, if we're going to get help and if we're going to hear God's voice, we got to go to the place that God speaks. I don't know that he was expecting some new dispensation of truth. I think he just knew where truth lived. And he said, I want to go where truth lives. I need to hear from God, so I want to go where he speaks. I need to get God's word, so I want to go to where God's word is. And I will say that if we want to hear his voice, one of the greatest things we can do is go back to the source and the place of strength and of wisdom. I see the journey to Horeb, but then look at verse number 9 with me. The Bible says, He came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, now this is very instructive, What doest thou here, Elijah? Now, how many of you know that God only asks rhetorical questions? An omniscient God can't ask any other kind. He already knows the answer. He's not asking because he's wondering. He's asking because Elijah needs to face the reality of what he's doing. And so he asked him to, in honesty and transparency, answer for him why he came to this place and what he's expecting to get out of it. Notice how Elijah answers. I have been very jealous 
for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken my covenant, thrown down mine altars, and slain my prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That's an interesting answer. It's an interesting answer because it's really no answer at all. What are you doing here, Elijah? And then he merely vomits complaint out to the Lord. Well, I'm here because everything's messed up. That's really, that's the layman's translation of it. I'm here because everybody's messed up and everybody's compromised and I'm the only person that cares and I'm the only person that loves you and here I am and I'm mad about it. That's what it means. Why did God ask him to do this? God not only knew the answer as it was before he asked Elijah, he knew the answer as it would be given before he asked Elijah. He didn't have to ask Elijah to find out what Elijah would say no more than he had to ask Elijah to find out what the actual truth of it was. So why is he beckoning Elijah to do this? Could it be that God is trying to draw out Elijah's complaint and he's trying to get him to be honest with the Lord? I would say this to you, that if we're going to seek his voice, there's going to have to be a renewing of our hope, and we're going to have to go to the place where God's word is, but there has to be a bearing of our heart as well. We have to get honest with the Lord. God can't help a hypocrite. God can't help a hypocrite, and God won't help you be a hypocrite. We've got to get honest with God if we want help from the Lord. And I think one of the things that is greatly hindering to our development of our relationship with the Lord and to God working in our life is us putting on airs and pretense when we talk to the Lord. Hey, you might as well be honest. He knows you anyway. There's no... uh, And I, I do think there is a danger in foolishly charging the Lord. But we don't find God having a cynical attitude towards His people bearing and pouring out their hearts unto Him. Over and over again, a great majority or a great, a great portion of the book of Psalms is devoted to the psalmist pouring his complaint out to God and complaining about what is difficult and what is wrong and what is fear-inducing and what is agonizing in his life. And a lot of us would be helped if we just quit trying to be super spiritual and tell God exactly how we feel and exactly what we're going through. I don't mean foolishly charging him. I don't mean slandering Him. I don't mean defying Him or shaking our fist at Him. But I do mean being honest enough to look at Him and say, Lord, I don't understand. Lord, I don't get it. Lord, I don't like it. Lord, I don't know why I'm going through what I'm going through. I see the seeking of God's voice in this passage. But then God shows up. Verse 11, the Lord said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. I want you to notice with me, not just the seeking of the voice, but notice the setting of the voice. When God spoke, what did it sound like? What did it seem like? What was the experience of hearing God's voice? It's interesting when you compare this. One time years ago, we did a series of messages on God's throne room. And, you know, Elijah, he hears all of these things from inside the cave. And when he goes to the outside of the cave, his face is wrapped in a mantle. He doesn't see anything that's going on outside. 
but rather through feeling and through hearing, he is sensing all that's transpiring. When you compare what takes place in this passage with other instances of God's throne, you begin to realize what happened in this passage. For instance, if you compare it to Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel describes the angels that bear forth the throne of God and their wings beating and it creating a great wind and it creating great thundering and it quaking the earth before them. And the Bible describes how that God, when the glory of His presence came towards Ezekiel, it was as a fire enfolding itself. Now, you can believe anything you want about this. Anybody's entitled to be wrong. But I'm of the opinion that what happens here is God's throne pulls up on the outside of this cave. All of the turmoil that Elijah heard, he thought that was destruction. But in fact, it was God's visitation. He thought it was everything shaken apart. But in fact, it was God showing up. God's throne pulls up parallel parks out the side of that cave mouth. And God begins to speak to him. I'm glad the Lord can show up when it's all shaking apart. I'm glad the Lord can show up when we don't understand. I'm glad the Lord can show up when we can't figure it out. And the Lord shows up. But there is an important truth contained in this. I would say this, that as we read this passage, there's two things we must realize. Number one, we must realize where the voice wasn't. Your Bible goes out of its way to tell us that the Lord was not in the wind. The Bible goes out of its way to tell us the Lord was not in the earthquake. The Bible goes out of its way to tell us the Lord was not in the fire, but rather the Lord was in the voice. It tells me all the things that accompany God's throne, all of the things that accompany God's presence are not equivalent to God's presence. It tells me this, there's no substitute to hearing His voice. It tells me just being in an environment where people are hearing His voice ain't the same as hearing His voice. It tells me going through things that others have heard His voice in similar circumstances is not the same thing as hearing His voice. It tells me that there is no substitute for listening to Him speak. And it tells me that chaos in and of itself is not where the voice is found. I was talking to somebody a while back about a decision they were making in their life and I've been guilty of this, I'm sure you have too, of trying to allow the circumstances of our life to be bellwethers for God's direction and God's guidance. You know, we often look at Gideon in the Old Testament and the setting of a fleece before the Lord, and a lot of preachers have made that to seem as though that's how we should be and that's how we should behave, that we ought to put fleeces out before the Lord and test the Lord and thereby divine His will. Can I remind you, we're not a bunch of stark pagans. We have a God that speaks to us. We don't have to try to put fleeces out to to discern His will. We can ask Him, and He'll speak to us. I mean, listen, God paid a steep price so that we have a high priest at the right hand of the Father. And we don't have to try to shake bones out onto the ground or divine signs in the heaven to understand what He desires. We have a prayer closet. We have a throne room. We're invited into it. We're begged to come into it and to obtain grace and mercy to help in time of need. We don't have to do that. And I think that there is a great danger in us laying fleeces before the Lord. You say, why is that, preacher? Because the devil can come along and dump a bucket of water on it. (laughs) Because the devil can come along and wring it out. (laughs) 
Because the devil can orchestrate all manner of circumstances that might cause you to go astray thinking you're following God's will because doors have opened or doors have closed. When that's not to be the mandate, that's not to be the method for New Testament Christians. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Hey, listen, we cry unto Him, Abba, Father. We can go unto Him and seek His will. So I was talking to this individual about a decision they were making in their life and and this person looked at me and they said, well, you know, I, I thought maybe this is a door open, maybe this door open, maybe that was a door And I made the comment to this individual, I said, you know, to me, I gain great comfort from the example of Nehemiah in the Old Testament who gets a burden to go back and to rebuild the walls of the city. And, you know, when you read through the book of Nehemiah, you know what you'll find? There's a phrase over and over and over again throughout the book of Nehemiah. It's the hand of God. He'll talk about the good hand of my God upon us. And according to the good hand of my God, we were prospered. But you know what's interesting? All this is written in retrospect. Nehemiah is recording the history of all that God has done. And looking backward, he sees God's hand. But can I remind you, it wasn't the hand of God that caused him to first leave the palace in Shushan. It was the heart of God. God gave him a burden. God spoke to his heart. God laid something on his heart and directed him. Listen, you'll see the hand of God in your life, but it ain't the hand of God you ought to be looking for. It's the heart of God you ought to be looking for. Absolutely, you'll be able to look backwards and say, man, I can see where God did this, and I can see where God did this, and I can see where God did that. My life is an absolute illustration. My life is, a, is, is an expression of how that God in His providence orders things. I'm certainly not saying God don't order things, but I'm saying your life will take many wrong turns if you're looking for some sort of symbol or sign to guide you instead of looking for the heart of God. He's given us His voice to listen to. And here's what Elijah had to understand. His voice wasn't in the chaos. It wasn't in all the externalities. And that when God wanted to speak, God is full well able to speak. So we see where it wasn't. But then we also see where it was. The Bible says after the fire, a still small voice. See, it wasn't in the chaos. It was in the calm that God's voice was. And I would say that oftentimes there's a great danger in the midst of trial looking for something that can can provide a bellwether or a compass for us instead of just stopping, calming our spirit, and asking the Lord to direct us and to show us. God is able to speak to you if you'll seek Him and if you're willing to hear Him. He doesn't have to use signs and wonders. He can use the Spirit of God and the Scriptures of God to guide you and to direct you in your life. And let me tell you something. You as a child of God shouldn't settle for anything less than the will of God. That, that's not... Hey, the will of God is not just the ideal thing we attain to. It, it's the absolute standard to which we should be seeking. It shouldn't just be... And, and, you know, you've heard this. I've heard it before. The idea that there's a, a good will of God, a perfect will of God, and accept... No, hey, there's one will of God, and that will of God is altogether good and acceptable and perfect. We're not looking for some tear in, in terms of God's will. We're not looking for some permissive desire that God allows us to have. I want to do the will of God and I want to know the will of God. No matter what it is. And in Elijah's life, he learned that if he'll listen, God will speak. And in the midst of your storm, you say, Preacher, I couldn't hear God over the din and chaos of all that I'm going through. Sure you could. Because he doesn't have to speak through loudness. He doesn't have to speak through screaming and yelling. 
He can speak through the still small voice of his word and of the spirit of God that applies his word. I see in this passage the setting of the voice. Finally, and I'm done, I want you to think with me for a moment of the substance of the voice. So when God's voice spoke, what did God's voice say? Verse 13, it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. Behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. (laughs) It's interesting when you think about both God's second question and Elijah's second answer. I don't know if God asked me a question twice that I'd have nerve enough to to answer him the same the second time. I'd probably stop and figure there's something wrong with how I answered. But I don't know. Maybe Elijah is best as he can just trying to be transparent with the Lord. What I do recognize is this. Elijah didn't need a new message. He needed a different attitude towards the old message. He didn't need some new truth. He rather needed to have a different response to the truth that God had given. And so when the Lord speaks, He don't change what He asks because there wasn't nothing wrong with what He asked in the first place. He instead asks the same thing. And it appears that He's trying to elicit from Elijah the very same thing again. And I would say this, that the substance of God's voice, it required of Him something. God asked Him a question. God said, Elijah, I need you to examine yourself. Elijah, I need you to assess yourself. Elijah, I need you to ask yourself these questions. And you know, often the reason we don't want to hear God's voice, oftentimes the reason that we are so hesitant to seek the Lord in the midst of our trials is we're scared of what He might ask us about. We're scared He's going to ask us about that sin that we've been refusing to give up. We're scared He's going to ask us about that person we've refused to forgive. We're afraid He's going to ask us about that service that we've refused to perform. And we're scared that we'll find out that at the heart of it all is God trying to bring us to a place of submission or obedience. But if we're going to listen to the voice of God speak, we're going to, be have, to, we're going to have to be willing to hear what He says, no matter what it is. I see it required of Him something. But not only did it require of Him something, it revealed to Him something. Verse 15. The Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. When thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshah, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Maholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. And him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Now, what is the substance of what God is saying here? Well, consider it in the context. What are you doing here, Elijah? I'm here because everything's messed up and it ain't going to get fixed. and ain't going to get no better. And nobody loves you but me. And I'm the most spiritual person in the world. All of them are compromisers. I'm the only one that cares. And they're going to kill me. And God, your plan has failed. That's what he's saying. You had a plan and it has all fallen apart, God. God's reply is, Elijah, I had a plan and it's all fallen into place. God didn't have long-term plans for Ahab. (laughs) He had short-term plans for Ahab. 
God had a plan the whole time. And here's what Elijah learns when he stops long enough to listen to the voice of God. Far from God's plan falling apart, it was falling into place. Far from God not having a plan, God had a plan far beyond what even Elijah would have anticipated. You know what you'll learn if you'll listen to God? You'll learn He knows what He's doing. He's, he's been, he's been being God for a long time. He's pretty good at it. He knows what He's doing. If you'll trust Him, He has a plan. If you'll follow Him, He has a plan. If you'll rest in Him, He has a plan. You say, but preacher, He ain't told you. Well, He ain't gotta tell you. He don't need your help being God. He doesn't have to inform you of what His plan is. Oh my soul, we get awful upset when God don't let us in on what He's doing. But can I remind you that uh, this thing is often on a need-to-know basis. God don't have to tell you what He's doing. We instead just have to know what's expected of us moment by moment. It revealed to him something. It revealed God had a plan the whole time. But then it reassured him in something. Verse 18, I like this. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. You know what it reminded Elijah? Oh my, this is a comfort. That God's plan don't rise and fall on him. God's doing more than just what he's doing in Elijah's life. And in fact, where Elijah feels like he is the only one left, here's what he learns. He learns that the very crux of his despair is rooted in a falsehood. He was upset because he thought God's plan had fell apart that he was the only one left, that there's all a bunch of cowards and hypocrites and, and fake people up on that mountain, that there was no one left that loved God except him, and they were getting ready to kill him. Here's what he meant. I mean, you understand what he's saying. What he's saying reaches beyond just himself. He's saying, I'm the last vestige of true light in Israel, and they're about to snuff it out. He's saying, when they snuff me out, there won't be nothing left. God says, Elijah, I got 7,000. You don't even know their names. You don't even know their addresses. You don't even know who they are. I'm doing things, Elijah, that you would have never even imagined. It tells me this, number one, we only see a sliver of what God's doing. We only see a sliver of what God's doing. God's doing far more than you'll ever be aware of this side of glory. But it also tells me this, that God has a contingency for the contingency for the contingency that you barely even recognize. God knows what He's doing. And He finds out Elijah, He's in despair because He thinks He's all alone. There's nobody left. Just Him and God. That's it. Now let me say this. He, he lived for three and a half years at just being Him and God. That was enough. But here's the reality. It ain't just you and God. God's given us people around us that love us, that support us. That, that know the Lord. Even if God didn't give us those people, He is enough. He is all sufficient. But we realize that things aren't nearly as bad as we think. Things aren't nearly as falling apart as we imagined. And that God is doing far more than we have ever recognized. Here's one of the reasons we don't want to hear His voice is oftentimes we're not done with our despair yet. And we know if we listen to His voice, God's going to do something cruel like make us feel better. We ain't ready for that yet. We're not done pouting. It's important that we think the world's falling apart. It gives it gives credence to our drama. And we're not ready yet to recognize that, in fact, when everything looked like it was shaking apart, God was putting it all together. 
God was doing a work beyond what we could see and beyond what we could comprehend in our life. He said, Preacher, what do I need in the midst of a, of a difficulty, of a trial? I know this is a lot like the message we preached this morning. It's what God laid on my heart. He said, Preacher, what do I need? What you need is to hear His voice in it. If you aren't hearing His voice in it, y'all stop and ask yourself why. Is it because you refuse to go to the place where His voice speaks? Maybe it's because you refuse to be honest with Him about what it is that you're struggling with. Maybe it's because you refuse to be honest with Him about some of the things in your life that you've done or are doing, some of the things that you are partaking in or refusing, some of the things that He expects out of you, some of the things... Maybe it's a matter of obedience and you don't want to hear what He has to say because you already know what He's going to talk about. Or maybe it's that you in your life are simply not ready, you think anyways, to get up and to arise and eat and to move forward with the Lord. I'll tell you this, the best thing we could all do, and I bet, I don't know, maybe he'll hit me in the mouth and call me a black liar when I get to heaven for this, but I kind of think Elijah probably regrets laying down and taking that first nap. He probably thinks to himself, why didn't I just get up and go on with the Lord instead? Why didn't I just the first time go ahead? He probably counts those as wasted hours that he spent napping on God. Instead of going forward with the Lord. Hey, I don't want to have any wasted out. If the Lord's ready to give me a hand up and to give me the strength and the comfort that I need. If He's ready to renew my hope and to move me forward in serving Him. And I believe He's always ready for that. Then I don't want to be the one that causes a delay. I want to move forward with God. I want to hear His voice no matter what my circumstance. Let's bow together tonight. A musician's going to come and play. And I just want to give you an opportunity to come and to talk to the Lord. I don't know what he may have spoken to you about. It's really not important that I do know. What is important is that you know and that you respond to him. That you allow him to have his will and way in your heart. Say, preacher, I need God's direction. We'll come ask him for it. Preacher, I need his comfort. We'll come ask him for it. Preacher, I need his wisdom. We'll come ask him for it. Preacher, I need his forgiveness. We'll come ask him for it. He's waiting on you. Would you be willing to come to him? Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.